I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking with Alex Kryline and David Odom of SecureSet. Alex and David are both managing partners at SecureSet. SecureSet is a Denver, Colorado-based firm, which is a startup accelerator called SecureSet Accelerator and a professional education company called SecureSet Academy. Their goal is to take on two major problems in the information security field, a lack of quality products and a lack of qualified personnel. Alex oversees and directs the SecureSet Accelerator in addition to teaching for SecureSet Academy. He served as a tech strategist for the Department of Homeland Security, guest researcher to the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, and legislative assistant to the U.S. Congress. He served on the Integrated Task Force for the NIST Cybersecurity Framework and serves on the board of a number of security startups. He's a fellow with the New America Foundation Cybersecurity Initiative and was a speaker at DEF CON 2016. David is a managing partner of SecureSet Accelerator focusing on venture operations. David spent the last 20 plus years engaged with leading edge startups, vibrant thought leaders, and imaginative technologists. He remains active as an advisor and mentor for early stage cybersecurity startups and university systems. In this episode, we discuss investing in cybersecurity companies, tips for starting a new company, how to make better information security products, cybersecurity education that works, the machine learning and AI buzzwords, Denver, Colorado's growing cybersecurity community, how the government can help improve cybersecurity, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, Dave and Alex, both from SecureSet, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you guys today? Doing great. 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 Absolutely. So you, you guys are both managing partners of SecureSet, which is a Denver-based cybersecurity services company, but I wanted to get I'll get back to that, but how, how, how did that really kind of start? Where did more or less what you do? How did the, the ramp up come to where it is? Yeah, for sure. So uh, SecureSet is an overall brand. I uh, actually started back in 2014. Uh, myself, Alex Kryline, co-founded it with Brett Fund, uh, who runs our sister company that does education. They run the Academy, which has this really excellent program to help improve people and their capabilities. Uh, you know, a lot of my focus has been on the product space and capabilities therein. And so our overall mission is to address these kind of two deficiencies in cybersecurity, people and products. Our Academy takes people and the accelerator that we operate focuses on products, right? And in doing that, what we have this unique capability of doing is really learning an enormous amount of information, making that applicable on our side to entrepreneurs and help them start companies that really solve actual problems and not just symptoms, but real problems in the cybersecurity startup market. Well, what, what are some of those problems that you think that are out there? I mean, we were just talking before we started recording about you know RSA and I, on the podcast, if you go back to a couple episodes where I said it was kind of an insanity of just a blender of lots of noise, flashy things. Yeah. But 
still some of the root problems, vulnerability management, bad passwords, poor user education, For sure. is year after year after year comes up in the data breach reports, we're gonna see in another month or so, yeah. the same problems are gonna lie. So what are the problems that are there and how do we fix them? Yeah, it's totally right. So, so Dave and I have spent a really, quite frankly, long time uh, focusing on security research and analysis, but not the way that most people do. What we started trying to figure out is what are kind of these first order conditions, right? These a priori factors that we really have to wrap our hands around. And so we came out of, after about a year of investigation, and a lot of analysis and a lot of researching, we focused on what we have our, our nine top problems in the industry. First order considerations that we really have to address before we can really even move forward and get into other types of techniques and technologies in cybersecurity. So just to run through them really quickly, uh, we tend not to focus on making developers stronger. We believe that software and the exploitation of software is what leads to you know, the exploitation of real vulnerabilities in the enterprise. Then we have to start focusing on software development and software development lifecycle management. Um, and that includes everything from language security techniques to API security frameworks. Um, beyond that, we need to start changing the economics of hacking. And we have to view this in an equation of time and materials, just like a good consultant would, right? Um, if we raise the time and materials costs of, of, of hacking, right, then what we will have fundamentally done is change the economics of attacking. Uh, and on that basis, we can start securing our enterprises through solutions that increase those time and material costs on attackers. And that's not just having a firewall, right? That goes has to go way beyond that into a deep integration of security into the enterprise, which isn't easy to do. And so we look for companies that make that more effective and efficient. We also really focus on this pre prevention-centric mindset, right? We want to focus on uh, approaches that are alternatives to just perimeter defense, but are really focused around making sure your operating system, your applications are patched and up to date, that we've analyzed them for vulnerabilities, or that we're using configurations of things like trusted platform modules, um, uh, encryption and signing, that are pervasive enough so that they become a strategic effect for the for the organization who implements them. And those things aren't easy the way they're done today. Using a trusted platform module can be easy if you know what you're doing, but if you don't, it's kind of a mess. Um, and that's not to pick on the TPM industry by any standard. It just shows an example that these things are harder than we believe them to be. Um, Dave and I have also really focused a lot on looking for companies that increase collaboration, uh, not just between technologies, but also people, right? If you believe cybersecurity is a team sport, then you really have to focus on collaborative technologies. And we've got some great ones here in the front range. Uh, we also have really tried to spend some time understanding the pervasive problem of software and hardware monocultures, where we get into this place where there are common mode failures, right? If, you know, uh, the uh, Heartbleed uh, Heartbleed bug is a perfect example of this, right? Where everyone is using relatively the same underlying code base and it becomes this common mode that everyone operates in. And then when there's a failure, it's not just a failure in one machine or a couple machines, but on every machine that's running OpenSSL. And we live in an environment in which, especially unlike the embedded market, most of the chips are manufactured by you know, Intel x86 architecture frameworks, or there are microprocessors. And so we have this in both hardware and software. And that's not to say that we need more chips or more software. It's to say we need a better way of dealing with monoculture problems. Um, we also don't really know if we're effective, 
right? It's, it's hard to determine whether or not when you make a billion dollar investment, if you're getting a billion dollars of security returns. And so helping managers understand the business operating and contextual frameworks to their investment decision-making processes is super important. It's the only way that we're going to be able to get kind of low information value vendors out of the market space and really focus on addressing real problems and not just putting in more infrastructure into a security operations center. Um, we tend also not to control our own enterprises, right? This is really problematic. Uh, if you look at just the top five for the CIS top 20, right? We're not controlling hardware, we're not controlling software, we're not controlling privileges. Um, and until we're able to actually take control of that, then everything else we do is a second order consideration. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, it's not easy to do that. Like just saying e-discovery is not the same thing as being able to actually capture all the endpoints in an enterprise and even go beyond endpoints and start talking about capturing all the software in the enterprise and then all the credentials in the enterprise, right? Like, it's incredibly difficult to do that, but that's in part because most organizations haven't focused on that, and I mean that from the product space. Most manufacturers of cybersecurity products don't develop products that do this effectively, efficiently, or easily, and also that increase collaboration and integrate with other tools, right? So this is a solution problem. And the last two that we have are uh, really focusing on trying to build hacker uncertainty. Right? If we can deceive our adversaries more effectively and efficiently, and this goes way beyond just deception grids. Right, uh, We have honeypots. You can download them today, and some of them are really effective, and some of them are not effective at all. Uh, but it's beyond you know, the idea of having a honeypot. It's the reality that our infrastructure tells the truth, and our adversary lies. And we have to start matching them on that playing field in order to be effective. And I'd say the last one, and probably one that we think is the most important, is building signal over noise. So it's great that we have all these sensors. That's helpful, actually. And it's also helpful that we get a lot of data back from those sensors. But it's not helpful unless you can put it into context. Then it just becomes noise. And it's really difficult for, I think, a lot of immature organizations. And that, by the way, does not mean young organizations. Sometimes you can have a Fortune 100 company that's really immature in their way of dealing with information security. It's hard for them to be able to actually do the analysis that will protect them if they can't distinguish the signal from the noise. Sure, and one of the things too, and I'm kind of going not, not to completely throw RSA under the bus too hard, but I mean, in that product space, when you see, and we were talking about like the CS top 20 and the top five, really it's, you know, software inventory, hardware inventory. Yep. You, you know, having control over what's in your environment, and there aren't a lot of products out there that can do it. It's not. And so that, that there is a lot of noise around that. Well, let's put that aside. Let's not have that discussion. Oh, we can talk about this. that, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's, it's interesting that the, is, is there starting to be more of a change where people are, are saying, okay, before you go start implementing product, you know, look at how holistically your environment's put together. Totally. Get it together and then start figuring out what color curtains you're going to need in the house before the roof is on. I think that's really right. And, and kind of the last thing I'd say on this is um, it's, it's tough in that the product development space doesn't seem to be matching up with the actual underlying problems. Many people are trying to sell product that isn't solving an actual problem. It's making a symptom chronic to live with. So firewall vendors, as an example, do not stop denial of service attacks. They make them a chronic symptom to live with, right? If you wanted to stop a botnet, you know, having a shield is going to make it something that's livable, 
right? Uh, but we have to be in the business of making sure that people can't manufacture spears so easily um, or that they're not effective at all even when they do. You know, I, I just add to that, I mean, one of the challenges we've seen is just what you brought up. And it really varies with the sophistication of the enterprise. I mean, when you look at the top 100 enterprises, they are thinking about some of these things and they have the ability to invest. What we really worry about are those mid-tier and smaller and even SMB, they don't even have the resources or knowledge of what their environments are or why they should care about it. And so those are a lot of things we think about as we look at products and opportunities to prove the accelerator. Yeah, and, and, and to that last point, there's, uh, what I've seen, there's a, not only the, the product knowledge, but the leadership is lacking in a lot of organization when it comes to information security. They tend to want to pass the buck and make it an IT problem. Or it's not an IT problem, it's a compliance problem. It's not a compliance, and just keep shifting the blame instead of looking at this as, this is a business problem. We're managing business risk with inside the organization. And are you trying to evaluate products that maybe have that approach where you can connect to business leaders to say, this is a business problem? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's a lack of context from the business side as to how appropriately approach security. Um, and it's also true that I think some of the security companies don't understand the business context in the way that they do things like billing. So as an example, if you work in a company that's really, really successful at digital marketing, you're going to get a lot of traffic, right? Which means you're going to generate a lot of logs. But who's going to pay for that license to a security incident and event management platform? Well, the security team is, right? So as the company does really, really well in terms of their market affect, um, the security team gets financially penalized because of the way that we've set up you know, licensing and billing models. And I think we have to start being more effectively understanding of not just like how does how should this product work for security either in terms of the product itself or the billing model we have to start looking at it as how is the enterprise going to most effectively adapt this defensive technology and that's a very different question so th th it sounds like there should be better kind of kpis that are out there for these and better metrics that people are looking at as opposed to just the cost you mean like we should know if we're effective exactly. <laughs> crazy yeah. i know but yeah. yeah well by the way i don't think it's just that though uh, you know, we, we all are aware of the challenges of security teams to demonstrate ROI, to become elevated at the C-level, although certainly organizations are recognizing this. But, you know, I think the real challenge is really down to user experience. And this is an important part of our focus. Products are really hard to digest and use. How does somebody on the security team translate to the C-level suite, much less to the IT team, and make that something that's really accessible? Mm -hmm. And I think that's beginning to happen in this space. But if you look around, it's got a long way to go. Yeah, I mean, and if you look too, you know, at the at the kind of human capital market in cybersecurity, it's also vastly it's also vastly changing. So it used to be that like a company would grab some you know really good network engineer, somebody who's got like a CCIE if they could hire them, right? They would grab somebody really great out of networking or really great out of like systems administration, and they would say, "You're the security guy now," right? Even though those two things are interrelated in that they both use computers, but that's kind of where the lesson ends to a really large extent. It's a very different framework and mindset of thinking. And what we've seen on the, you know, on our sister company in the academy side is that there's a really high rate of adoption for people who have a, a different background than that, which means that the products have to be responsive to the people who are using them. Not everything can be a terminal interface anymore, and not everything needs to be some standalone GUI. Products have to work together, they have to integrate, they have to be accessible by people who don't have a formal computer science background or a formal systems or network administration background. And if they're not, 
then the product space will not keep up with the changing user environment in the market, which means those products won't get adopted and those companies will not be as successful as they could be. And one of the things we're certainly seeing now more, it seems the 2017 buzzword is machine learning and AI that comes into all this. And is that, you know, it seems to be kind of a misunderstood. Yeah. Um, it's like fairy dust. You can yeah. just sprinkle it on It's anything, another magic right? bullet. Isn't that like crypto? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just sprinkle crypto on top. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, is, is, but I mean, not to discount it, there's obviously there's going, it's needed. There's going to be a lot of it because you, you can't staff enough people to look at all the alerts all day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, you know, it's interesting from my perspective uh, as a former venture investor uh, covering this space for the last 15 years, you know, the classic challenge has been just what you stated, right? How do we uh, leverage our resources or our high tier resources with more automation? The problem is, is that the infancy of this technology, you know, is still very raw and it takes a specialized user or programmer to really get at this. And this is also back to fine. If you've got the staff to run the data science, to program the machine learning, how do you turn those into results that are actionable and usable? Mm-hmm. So that's where we've seen the real fallout. Uh, everybody has a uh, machine learning or AI project, but it's not demonstrating the results everybody thinks they should. Yeah, and, and some of the other guests I've had on the podcast, uh, Kristen Lovejoy, who is a product mm. out there, you know, her point was this is, you know, it's assisted. You know, it's not a replacement. Yeah. It's to enhance the capabilities of what, it, what a human being can do, but you still need a human behind the uh, terminal or keyboard. That's right. Yeah, because there's, there's a downside with security DevOps, which is if you just automate something and you're not watching as to what's happening in your enterprise, you're really likely to start shutting down very critical business services quickly. And, and that, that, you know, is the incumbent factor there to, you know, be able to do that successfully or not isn't just having somebody who's really educated and effective. It's also having a product that's effective to use that meets customer requirements, which is a real big focus on what Dave and I have built around the accelerator. We, we begin our process by going and doing a ton of market research and analysis. So every company that applies, we have a screen for. We know whether or not they're going to be, you know, not whether or not they're going to be successful, right? That's a crystal ball. We don't have that. Um, But whether or not they're likely to be, you know, potentially successful in the market. And then we pair them with customers and we have a, a really effective and thoughtful product market fit engagement that goes for quite a bit, uh, quite a long period of time where we work with customers and startups to make sure that everything that's being designed and developed can be purchased and can be purchased effectively and quickly. And so what we really are doing is we're integrating all these different functions um, around, you know, disaggregation of trust, you know, disintermediation of customer voice from the product development lifecycle. And we're getting involved in integrating, I think, a lot of factors together that help make companies build faster, stronger, and also build not alone, right, but build with their customer um, so that they can be effective and get real revenue and traction, which is, as Dave says, is the best attractant to to follow on investment. And he's absolutely right. So if, if, you know, what, what are some of the ideas? If, if I'm, I'm coming up with an idea and I want to take it to the next level of funding, what are the things that I should be kind of considered or maybe worried about as I kind of go out into the marketplace to try to get some of that funding? What, where are the landmines, I guess? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think these are things that really span all industries in some senses. I think one of the biggest challenges that every startup has is understanding the pain in the marketplace. Because it's not necessarily that the market is a billion-dollar market and that's going to make it the best. It's really that pain space. 
How hard and difficult is that pain for the customer? And do you really understand it? And then once you do, have you really built the right solution? I think the other big challenge is, is how do you communicate this space? There is a lot of interest in investing in this market, but unfortunately, you know, it's not something that the average investor necessarily has all the background to fully assess. There's amazing investors out there and do a great job. But I think, uh, unfortunately, over the last 10 years or so, we've seen some of the noise in the product space come from lack of understanding on the investment side. And so I think finding investors that really understand this space, who are connected to the communities that also understand it, incredibly important. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things, and, you know, it's certainly been parodied in shows like Silicon Valley, it's that, you know, quickly throw money around in the VC space and we'll get you through your series of funding yeah. before you even have a product. And um, I guess where, where do most of these product companies kind of fail? Is it not having a fully formed idea or is there parts of it with the funding too where they just run out? Or is it a combination? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, there's a couple of fa- failure modes. And, and actually, there's an, even a more important one that I'll touch on uh, after these, which is first, I think the biggest challenge is people raise money before they've put together a repeatable business model. So, hey, I've got a great idea. I, I think I understand it. I think what the market is, let me get somebody excited and I'll raise a bunch of capital. And it turns out, uh oh. Actually, I didn't. I didn't really understand the market. I didn't have enough repeatable business model to really scale. I wasted that money, and the whole thing blew up. Uh, that's typically something we see, and that's something we work hard at, at really understanding what that business model needs to be before you go out and raise more capital. The, the other thing uh, that I think is really interesting and that I've been looking at for the last three years is really around co-founder dynamics. And that's a nice way of saying, how the hell do two people or three people get along when they start a company. And it's typically the real killer for most startups. And so there's a soft emotional side uh, to this around emotional intelligence, in fact. And there's a lot of science behind that. And so that's something we're also really focused on to strengthen founders and make them stronger teams. I'd also add, I think there's a there's a lot of people in this space because it is so heavy in engineering, as it should be. Um, but they conflate the difference between an engineered solution and a product. And then they don't really know how to engage in business development and sales. And that's fine because they're they're totally different things and they require absolutely different people. But in a perfect world, we would help brilliant and thoughtful engineers through the process of not just product development, but also helping them understand how to do some basic customer acquisition, right? Not to say that we need to turn our engineering teams into a sales force. That's not it at all. It's to help them understand the pain of customers and be responsive and have a conversation, you know, maybe between themselves and another engineer or themselves and a manager, right, of engineers, uh, chief information security officer, a chief risk officer, you know, a, a chief information officer, you know, choose your own adventure, right? Um, but the, the lack of capacity to do that only harms the ability for companies to be successful. And so being thoughtful, and Dave and I both having worked in engineering and having this long background in, in heavy IT and information security, um, you know, we're really thoughtful and responsive to that because we're not a generalist accelerator. We don't do cybersecurity and fitness applications. We don't do cybersecurity and yoga studios, right? We do cybersecurity and the the tangible markets directly on the edges, uh, from you know our data science and automation to machine learning and and other technologies, right? Because they're really value additive. But you have to go to a specialist. 
Um, you wouldn't like you wouldn't go to a chiropractor for for a head cold, right? So you know don't when you know if you're a startup making a decision, think through like what's the value that I actually need to bring to to be brought out of this, um, and if it's something specific to having to you know really attack the cybersecurity and enterprise IT market, there's great organizations out there like SecureSet Accelerator that you can select from. And if it's other things, right, there are other accelerators that you can work with too, but the generous, generalist accelerator piece is not necessarily value additive to entrepreneurs, and they should be really thoughtful about making that decision before they make an engagement. I just want to touch on one of the things you said about, you know, engineers, uh, and there was that, and I think it was in the last season, Silicon Valley was, you know, they, they kind of do the proof of concept and yeah. all the engineers love it. Yeah, totally. And it sure. becomes this complete sure. echo chamber. Yeah. And then when the the average user sees it, it kind of there's a meltdown. Is that a common theme that you see with a lot of engineers trying to put product out and like, well, all my friends love it. Yeah. Uh, well, well I, I, you know, and yeah. I think we can, I can say this, you know, as a practicing engineer in a former life and a product manager uh, in pretty tech heavy spaces, uh, I do. And I, I, I can actually think back uh, at a very young age where I remember saying, you know what, why do we need a marketing department? I mean, we know what the customer wants. We, we build all this stuff. Yeah. We, you know, and it turns out I was a thousand percent wrong on that and, and found that out through a lot of years of experience. But I think it's a natural tendency for engineers to think deterministically and to kind of have a sense of, I know what's right because I have the skill sets to build all these things. And invariably, they're not right. And it's a hard thing to hear sometimes. And I tell you, that's been a challenge in the past when I've uh, advised or worked with other teams is when you have an engineering-centric founder team, it, it can be hard to hear that the user might be right, not them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've used products, you know, having come out of, you know, the, the more traditional telecom and networking space. You know, when I first started getting into cybersecurity, I, you know, it's a product-centric space, right? You use tools. Um, not having training and trying to do that uh, was terrible. Um, the, the worst thing was trying to get the training and being felt like I was being forced into a box as opposed to being able to be able to use their product in a more liberated manner. Uh, and so, you know, we focus on user experience, user interface, um, development of really effective DevOps and automation techniques to help companies scale uh, all the way up until, you know, teaching them how to have a conversation with a buyer, a purchaser who's going to need to convert on that sale. Those are important things for early stage companies. And just one quick note. I mean, and I think you this is really at the core. I just want to focus on this a second because... This really is at the core of what we're trying to do. We're trying to bridge the world between the engineering team and the, and the company founders and the customer's voice. And we're trying to make sure it's heard and that it is translated into the product features and capabilities. That's really, at the end of the day, a huge chunk of what we're doing. Yeah, and what I'm seeing, there, there's more accessibility to get some of that feedback from the client. So I, I've... I, when I first started a, a digital forensic company in New York several years ago, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was doing Google AdWords to try to get placement. Prior, I'd been doing, you know, traditional marketing, newspapers and things yeah. like that. And, and prior tech startups, which you just wait six months and you hope the money comes in. Yeah. Google AdWords, things like that, you get immediate results. But even, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily, I, I, so maybe sometimes my engineering hat fell on my head a little too hard. But, you know, I put out words like uh, computer forensics, digital forensics. 
Google did the great thing of suggesting AdWords and started doing PC forensics, a yeah. word I would never use to describe my products or services, right. but that's what the customers were looking for, and that's what became the most most common thing. Totally. So it's interesting now that we there is that feedback that you can get from a lot of other sources of what works and what doesn't, because this is what the consumer's looking for. Yeah. So, you know, you are based out of Denver. Why not Silicon Valley? Why not New York? Have you been to Denver? <laughs> Denver is awesome. Yeah. I, I moved here. I love it. So I, I you know, preach yeah. to the choir, but I, I'd say there's, there's a couple of reasons why, you know, why, why we've selected this as our, as our first market. Um, so there were some things about Denver that most people don't really know. Uh, it's the, you know, the front range as we call it, which is, you know, basically Fort Collins, Boulder, Denver, um, and in some of the suburbs south of Denver, just in front of the Rocky mountains is, uh, the home of, uh, cable labs and the American telecom industry. So like most of the big cable companies were founded or operated out of the front range. Um, so there's this great legacy of like heavy enterprise in tech and telecom here. We're the home of the storage industry. Uh, we're also the home of some of the original hacking crews for DEF CON. Uh, and most people forget about that part, but if you go to DEF CON, the 303 party is the loudest, largest party you'll ever see. <laughs> um, and that's because we have a really great security research community out here. We have some of the top uh, researchers in automotive vehicles, embedded systems, web applications that live out here, and they do it in part because they get to choose a lifestyle that they want. Uh, it pays incredibly well in the front range uh, to live here without the cost of a $6,000 a month, 400 square foot efficiency um, in Silicon Valley, which we love, uh, but no longer feel like paying for. Uh, and so there's a great developer community here to help you build your products. There's a great business community here that's very tightly held, but open to people who move here. Uh, that is really effective. I mean, five years ago, I was living in Washington, D.C., and, you know, here I live in, in Denver, Colorado, and it's really easy to pick up the phone and have lunch with a very large company, either private or publicly held CEO. That's not something you really have an opportunity to do in a lot of other places. Well, and there, you know, there's a, also a bigger trend happening here, and I'll just put this through the lens of covering this state informally for over the last 10 years and investing in companies in the state before locating here about three years ago. I would say about four years ago, I personally observed an inflection point in entrepreneurship, uh, capital attraction, and really just foundationally attracting the talent out to Colorado. People are, in many cases, fleeing the Bay Area from a cost of living perspective. Denver's one of the fastest growing cities in the country, and that's a big reason. And I think when you look forward three or four years from now, it's going to be even more amazing. And so I think we're really catching the wave of what's happening in Colorado, much less all the things Alex just described. Yeah, it seems to be in my, my short time of being here so far, there seems to be that more of a community than what I've seen in New York and in the Bay Area, where there's a lot of lip service to that. But here there's, there's really more of an organic growth of people that are doing funding and to the startups and to the ideas that they're they're people seem more accessible. Yeah, absolutely. And that's funny. I, I, I tell this, I, that's, and I think it's almost a universal, uh, you know, observation because it's exactly the one I had. Uh, I've covered, you know, all markets, all of this country from an entrepreneurial, uh, ecosystem perspective. And I think you're exactly right. There's something uniquely authentic about 
the word community here in Colorado, I'd say even broadly, yeah. than I see anywhere else. And I think also there's a little bit of this, hey, uh, we need to kind of band together to kind of strengthen, you know, who we are right. uh, as a community as well. And I think there's kind of self-fulfilling uh, component to that. It was interesting when I moved out here from D.C., like my, my friends and colleagues back at Homeland Security, at National Security Agency, at, you know, all the three-letter or sometimes four uh, uh, agencies, they, they were like, so you're going out there to be a ski bum. Right. And I was like, no, I, I'm moving out there because I, I wanted to work at uh, these really amazing labs we have in Boulder with National Institutes of Standards and Technology. And I wanted to you know, work in standards engineering. But I also told them I've heard really good things about the security community to wit, they generally chuckled at me. And then I got out here and went to one of my first OWASP meetings and there was like 150 people in the room. And, and I remember going to the same meetings in DC and it was like six guys and, you know, a pony keg of terrible beer, just, you know, talking and being frustrated about the state of application security. And here we have people who are really doing things to actually make that change. Um, so there's a lot of headiness to it out in, out in the Denver area. Yeah. One of the things I found recently, I was speaking to some of the folks at ISSA. They said, this is the largest chapter in the world that there's really, it's kind of a a community that people have been kind of sleeping on in the security community. But, you know, with that attraction, is there a risk where it can become saturated and can become, you know, too cool for itself? Yeah, it'd be great if we could solve the problem of cybersecurity. Is, I guess what you're get, is what you're really getting at, right? No. I mean, it, uh, yeah, I mean, we have the opportunity to get too full of ourselves like any other market can. Um, I think that's less likely to be true in the front range than it is in other places, in part because most people aren't built that way out here. Um, or if they are, they kind of lose that real quick. Uh, and I think like standing in the majesty of 14,000 foot mountains really helps you understand how small you are. Get a little humbled. Yeah, for sure. Uh, especially when you pass out That's at, right. at 11,000 feet. Right. Yeah. Um, but the, the output is, uh, I think, you know, all the ingredients are ripe for a really great boom in Colorado, I would actually say that's already happening. I mean, between, you know, Optiv, Ping Identity, Webroot, Logarithm, Red Canary, like you have a ton of really great companies who are out here. Uh, Route 9B down in Colorado Springs, like, you know, there's, there's great things here that exist in a lot of other places, but we know who each other are and we call each other and then we have a beer and that just makes life a lot better. <laughs> now I kind of want to turn to the, the academy. So, I mean, obviously, the, one of the other things we hear of, the, and, and you guys have identified certainly, is that there's products and people as kind of two parts of this cybersecurity conundrum. Um, so what is it about the academy and your approach that you're doing that you think is going to be different than, say, a, a traditional three- or four-year program of school and getting out and hopefully you get a job and sure. learn cybersecurity? What's different about the way you guys are doing it that will help solve the gap? Yeah. So probably best to let my, my, my co-founder, Brett Fund, have a longer conversation sure. with you about it. Uh, my just quick two cents um, on this. You know, I have like three or four degrees and none of them taught me how to use Metasploit. Not to say that Metasploit is the end-all be-all, right? It's a lot but of fun. It's a lot of fun, and it's also an important tool. And very few universities teach students how to tune an IDS or to run a heuristical analysis on, on logs or use a product um, or even how to really think tactically, 
right? Most of it is these formal methods of education of we're going to teach you computer programming um, and we're going to do that with an eye to security. But what's interesting is only a very, very small number of universities, and I mean like under 20 in the entire country that have computer science programs also teach secure programming. And so even in the thing that they think is accomplishing the output that they believe is the right one, they're still failing. Um, not to mention the average rate of student debt is somewhere around $160,000. And that stays with students across, of course, they have, across the course of their lifetime. And it often, oftentimes takes four years to complete a degree, right? We're 20 weeks. We're terribly effective. Uh, the, the program is designed and developed around the requirements of the market. Actually, much like the same way that the accelerator is designed to develop around the requirements of the market. And so we're giving employers the opportunity to hire people that meet their needs as opposed to someone who has a degree but who's probably a larger gamble. Uh, and so on that basis, you know, we're consolidating down a lot of technical capability in both theory and practice uh, from practitioners people who are themselves hiring managers, people who are themselves pen testers, people who work in network security, people who have 10 years of experience working in logs and detection. Uh, and so on that basis, we can just do a better job. Um, you know, it, it saddened me when I, I went through a, a CU Boulder, which I'm very proud of being an alumni of, but even at CU, I only had to take two classes in cyber where in, in anything that would be closely considered information security. And one of them was governance, risk, and compliance, which is terribly important. Uh, but they deemed it as a business major. Um, and, and so, like, I just kind of sat there scratching my head. And the thought process was, well, GRC is not technical. So we can't really put that under, you know, the formal nomenclature of the School of Engineering. It was cross-listed. Um, what's annoying about that is GRC should and is terribly technical. Uh, and, you know, to just treat it as a function of, you know, we're, we're going to get people to hold hands uh, is wrong. And, uh, and that does disservice, I think, um, you know, to the enterprise. And so on that basis, you know, we have this approach where we take expert practitioners and we help them teach the next generation of students all the things that they need to do to be nimble, effective, accountable in their jobs and able to be hired. You know, and one of the things that you see, again, we talk about this gap, and but is it is it necessarily just throwing more bodies at the problem? Is there issues where we need to develop better leaders where you can get the maximum return and get a 10x on each one of these these technical people that we develop? Yeah, I mean, you know, and this is part of our hope on, on the accelerator side is that we're going to help develop products that make it more efficient, right? So, like, if you have a 10,000 server environment that you need to patch, Doing it by hand, even in the most effective measure, as an example, is still somewhat of an onerous task. Um, and so technology can be helpful, but there is a limit to that in which people need to be really skilled or also be able to build really good leadership. And, and so I, I'd say it's a combination of those two things. Um, and, you know, we need to start educating people for where the field is going, not to where the field was at the time in which a you know professor who got their dissertation in some 1990s modality feels that he can still teach um and and that's that's i think really ultimately the difference is you know on the academy side you know they're there to represent both the employers and the students right and the way that they measure it their metrics are around placement which is not something that any university has a metric around uh, or at least not a formal one <laughs> um and so uh 
that changes the mindset. And then having people who are practitioners who know what they need to do now and where the field's going to be in a couple of years, that's really helpful. Uh, go ahead, oh, Dave. Well, I, I think it's an important question because, and I think it transcends necessarily education. I, from my perspective, uh, it's absolutely critical and it is an opportunity to improve on. And I think what's happening is, is one, is security as an issue is elevating itself within the enterprise and the organization at higher and higher levels. And as more and more practitioners are graduating up from being, uh, you know, operators to actually managers and who have the experiential, you know, background to translate why all these things are important and to get in front of the problems and start guiding the conversation I think that's going to happen after a few more cycles as people move through industry. I don't think we're there yet, uh, but I think we're going to get there over time. I think that's right. Do you see a, a difference between leadership and management in that context? Uh, well, uh, well, first of all, I think those are two words that are always conflated, right? And they're two just fundamentally uh, different things. And I really think when I think about that, I think there are amazing managers out there who are uh, very effective in operations and in ensuring outcomes happen. I think the real challenge is on the leadership side, kind of back to our, our just our earlier uh, conversation. I think that's one where there's still this uncertainty around communicating ideas in this space and why they're important. Once you rally people around that, I think you can begin to be more of a leader and drive things at the organization level. Yeah, the, thing, the only thing I'd add on that is I don't think that people who are not managers don't also have a responsibility to be leaders, right? And some of the best leadership that, I, that I've gotten over my career has been from my peers. Um, I've also worked for incredible managers like, like Dave has as well. I've also worked for managers that exhibited no characteristics of leadership. Um, and so uh, it becomes really challenging. Um, I think what we have to do in the security industry is to help empower and enable people who are challengers, right? Who are there to try and get a job done and really believe in that. Um, and create a circumstance for their success. And so if people who are really good at security leadership um, start understanding the kind of outsized value uh, that you know people with those capabilities can bring, I think we'll really start moving the ball down the road and get away from just the you know traditional market space of, do you have a threat intel feed? Okay, great. Do you have a firewall? Oh, awesome. You must be safe, right? That's not, you know, anybody who's really serious knows that that's not an effective strategy. And so we need leadership to back up people who are there to help improve the organization and the enterprise. Yeah, unfortunately, kind of going back to like GRC and things like that, it's sometimes risk is not a sexier term than cybersecurity. So cool. <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't want to do risk management. I want to do cybersecurity. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I love that people think that they're different. Like, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing if you're not managing risk, you know? Yeah, it's an unfortunate byproduct, I think, of some of the marketing in the space. Yeah. Um, but you know, in one of the last things I want to touch on a little bit, too, is you know, how the government interacts. Now, so you've had a background in, in government before you, you left government. Obviously. Yeah. But you know, in government, has, at times, I had the best relationship with the hackers and cybersecurity community. Right. And how do you think, you know, coming from government, that the government can help with cybersecurity? Is it more regulation, policy, innovation? 
tax credit. So what is it that a go- where government can be effective yeah. in helping the problem? So um, I actually want to start by framing what I, I think the one of the actual problems is that is never talked about, which is the social impact of cybersecurity. And this frustrates me because I, I think we've kind of dehumanized it and we've taken the face off of the actual goal that we're trying to accomplish. But let's take a circumstance in which we have two people. We have uh, uh, you know uh, a woman named Jennifer and a woman named Karen, right? Jennifer shops at Whole Foods, uh, at Neiman Marcus, uh, and you know spends quite a bit of money. She's an attorney. She has good insurance. Um, she's really done a great job in her life to financially capitalize in this manner in which she's financially secure, right? Karen, on the other hand, hasn't been able to do that uh, and shops instead of at Whole Foods at Save-A-Lot um, and instead of at Neiman Marcus at the dollar store. Um, out of between Neiman Marcus and the dollar store, who do you think is spending more money to protect their customers' data? Yeah, probably Neiman Marcus, right? Now, granted, they had a data breach, and we understand that, and that's fine. But they're, but they're still probably doing more. They may, not, they may be also be a higher target. And so there's calculus there that has to evolve. But at the end of it, it frustrates me that I think both of them are equally at risk by the fact that they're American citizens and their identities are worth a pretty static amount, no matter what their financial income is. Um, and that one of them is inherently protected by visa fraud, for, for fraud prevention services, and the other one has a green dot card and doesn't have access to that. You know, one person has insurance, the other person can't afford it. Um, and so, and you can go through a whole list of these, and I've tried to write some of this about it, you know, in articles like The Social Impact of Cybersecurity, right? And, and it's helpful to put that context around it because if what we're just trying to do is, is, is solve the problem in the CIKR sector, right? Critical infrastructure and key resources, then we're forgetting where people are as opposed to where national purposes are. People don't work at oil and natural gas companies. I mean, they do for sure, but the preponderance of people don't interface with them outside of a billing cycle. Now, they they get their services, which is very, very, very important, but that's not the same as protecting their private information. And so government's focus has really been on these critical infrastructure key resource sectors. And I'm not sure that that's perfectly aligned and matched with protecting consumers so much as protecting national purposes. Both are really important. I'm not downplaying protecting, you know, Chevron or, or one of the, you know, the major companies that provides a massive service for, for consumers. But it's, it's not the same as also just protecting consumers. Those things are different. Um, and so, you know, Dave and I have, have both actually spent quite a bit of time in and around government in different capacities. Uh, you know, my, I think my, my kind of thoughts on, on, on how government interacts with cybersecurity has been really hard because, you know, they, they don't hire people with tattoos, just as an example, or piercings, or like people who might register somewhat on the ADHD or Asperger spectrum. And, and, and those are a lot of the people who work in the field. And I'm very cognizant and emotionally thoughtful of those people. And it's really also hard to get them a job in the federal government. And so then the question is, okay, if they if it's hard for them to join the federal government, then I think the next question is, how does the government interact with them? And the reality is, is that they've kind of criminalized this idea of hackers. Um, and and that's, that's really problematic because I see a lot of people who work in the security research field, which is the polite term for hacking, right, as people who are 21st century consumer advocates. They find the problems in products. They try and report them to make them better. And I think if we maybe changed our approach on it and put down some of our rhetoric, we'd be a little bit more effective and efficient. 
Well, I would just add one more thing, kind of having a unique background, helping manage the Department of Defense's Venture Capital Fund, investing in security products, and working with at the intersection of those worlds of how do you take technology in or out of the government into the commercial world. I think there's a really unique opportunity in cybersecurity because a lot of times what you run into is governments fund things for government. Yeah. We've got an opportunity where our interests should be very aligned. And so there's no one solution, but I think in terms of investing and enabling early stage companies and technologies can be really valuable because we should be on the same page. And I think we're seeing those initiatives throughout the government. I think they could be stronger. Do you think there are examples where the government has been effective in helping cybersecurity, like specific programs or initiatives that they have done? Yeah, I think the Department of Homeland Security has done a really good job uh, also working with the FBI on kind of these tier one incident response, um, both for liability protection, for investigation, for digital forensics and incident response, for a, a whole host of things. And, and they're oftentimes not given enough credit. I mean, our community likes to beat up on some of these organizations, and a lot of times it's well-deserved. It's not always well-deserved, and they're not a punchline, right? They are serious organizations that add incredible value. Um, but they're not alone, right? There's a lot of other organizations that you would want to interact with, uh, especially for you know uh, uh, digital forensics or incident response or any of those kind of subsequent fields. Um, I think that in terms of policy, uh, the federal government has been really lightweight and hands-off to date. Um, and there has been a lot of conversation about, sh- is that appropriate or should we do more? Um, and so, for example, uh, it appears that you know the FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, uh, will not be taking any action on anything relating to cybersecurity, which is concerning, by the way, as a consumer advocate, uh, that apparently they're there to regulate all communications by wire or radio, but they're not there to make sure that they're secure. Um, separately from that, National Highway Transportation Safety Authority wants all light vehicles to be connected over a Wi-Fi-like protocol by 2023, yet they've taken very few steps to make sure that that's done securely. So we almost have this like regulatory malpractice problem where we're like, take broadband, take communications networking, take automation, do all these things. But we're not there to make sure that they're done appropriately or securely to ensure your safety. And so I don't think that there necessarily needs to be more government regulation. I think there just needs to be a lot more transparency in what companies are doing on any number of level so that people can compete in the marketplace or companies can compete in the marketplace based on or around in some level of calculus how they're treating consumers. And then if they don't affect to that, if they don't actually stand behind what they said that they were doing, then they should feel free to meet the Federal Trade Commission and Section 5 of the FTC Act for, you know, uh, uh, um, business practices that are deceptive. Um, And, you know, I mean, you don't have to have regulation of consumer protection. I think what you need to have is a level of goodwill and transparency. And here's the great news. Many companies are already doing that, right? It's the outliers that aren't. And those are the problem cases. And regulation won't fix that anyway. Because if they want to violate it, they're going to violate it regardless of whether or not regulation says that they should or should not. Yeah, and, you know, kind of on the other side of that coin, is there things that people in the cybersecurity and hacker community or whoever in in, in this realm 
can do to help the government. You know, it can't always just be a one-way street. Is there things that, you know, there are people could be more involved? I know you have some strong opinions, Alex. You should you should share them. We're we're, we're quietly laughing <laughs> on the other side of these microphones. Uh, As I lob lob softballs at you. Yeah. yeah no, uh, softballs that will definitely get me phone calls from friends. Uh, that's why I want them to, to start. The yeah, that's fair. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, there are some efforts that are really good. Uh, you know, I think I think efforts like Hack the Pentagon may go, they may be a little bit more marketing mm -hmm. than real output, um, but they're a great step in the right direction, right? I think what has to happen is a disintermediation between people who actually do hacking and the reporting to the government. So there's got to be some sort of qualified organization that can say, yeah, that's actually a real vulnerability. And we're going to, you know, take that to the manufacturer. We're going to take that to the government, and you can trust us. I think the one of the biggest problems in the security research field is that hackers believe if they are able to find novel exploits, that they will just be warehoused for later use by some sort of national security or intelligence organization. That's not actually always true. Um, in fact, it's it's kind of rarely true. But the outliers have created the narrative. Um, and so one thing I think that could be done more effectively on the government side is transparency back to security researchers to tell them, here are your boundary conditions, here's what you're legally allowed to do, um, and we, you know, we would appreciate your input, and for that, we will find some sort of way of respecting you for your work, either financially or with notoriety or in another mechanism. But you know, there are just some things like the, um, I mean, like CFA and others that just have to start going away. Uh, we just have to do a better job of aligning how the internet works with how law enforcement it should be capable of enforcing the law. Uh, running, you know, running Nmap should not give you cause to not pass co, not collect $200 and go right to jail. Uh, and it's, it's totally up to the interpretation of law enforcement as to whether or not they choose to enforce it, which is also a problem because now it's completely, uh, it, it's completely random from the perspective of the security researcher. Um, and so, you know, some things like copyright protection, Right, have to be updated to understand how modern computing systems work. Um, things you know, like uh, you know, kind of the anti-hacking laws, the national security laws, and Patriot Act, and so on and so forth. They actually have to start reconciling: how do we solve this problem? What is the problem? How do we solve it? And who needs to help us? And then, what do those people need in terms of rights to be protected and feel like they can be of value? Um, demonizing them is only creating a problem. Uh, some of them have real reasons why we would want to demonize them. Some of them are terrible people. Um, there are a lot of people who work in the hacking community who are awesome. They may have accidentally overstepped a boundary. That doesn't mean that they should go to jail. It means we should be smarter about figuring out how to work with them. A lot of it seems to be there, there needs to be those better avenues for people to do you know, responsible disclosure in ways that it can be talked about in ways where there's not selective enforcement and that there is some consistency in which that's done. So that sounds like it could be a joint effort between government and the community. Yeah. But where does it start? Yeah. Well, it's also, I think some people view it too as a Republican or a Democrat problem, which is really interesting because it's not, a, this is not a political issue. This is just, this is an, this is an issue about how do you view the role of government and law enforcement vis-a-vis -vis consumer protection, right? If you start with the idea that a lot of these people have consumer protection in mind or research that they want to generate value off of, as opposed to they're criminals, 
if you just change your perspective on the inputs, then the outputs also change. No, I, I think everybody who is in this area and sees the same thing you, I think, well articulated. And, you know, at some point, I think somebody's going to have to take the initiative. And what that's going to imply is really at the root of all of this is trust and transparency and, and really understanding motivations. Because I think that mix of those three things are what creates confusion and or selective enforcement because I have this bias that because you did X, you're trying to do Y and, and vice versa. I don't know that I have the answer of who's going to take that first step, but until somebody does, I don't think it happens. Well, gentlemen, I thank you for your time today. We, we covered quite a bit, but where can, uh, where can people find out more about SecureSet and what you guys are doing? Yeah, so for the accelerator, they can go to securesetaccelerator.com. They can learn all about you know the kind of services that we provide, the way that we work, our deep customer relationships by uh, you know interfacing there on the website. For people who are interested in being mentors or plugging in and adding their voice into what they think the product space should look like, they can find our mentor page at securesetaccelerator.com/mentors. Uh, and uh, for both myself, Alex, and Dave Odom, we're just Alex at Securset and Dave at Securset. Easy to find. Pretty easy. And I'll be sure to put all the show notes, links, Twitter, and all the, uh, the feeds awesome, on there so people don't have to try to drive and type it into their phone. And... <laughs> yeah, don't drive in text. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you again so much. I appreciate the time. Hope thank you enjoyed you. the conversation. Absolutely. Thank Absolutely. you. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.